Our scripture reading today is from Genesis 11, verses 1 through 9. Now the whole earth had one language and the same words. And as people migrated from the east, they found a plain in the land of Shinar and settled there. And they said to one another, Come, let us make bricks and burn them thoroughly. And they had brick for stone and bitumen for mortar. Then they said, Come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower with its top in the heavens, and let us make a name for ourselves, lest we be dispersed over the face of the whole earth. And the Lord came down to see the city and the tower, which the children of man had built. And the Lord said, Behold, they are one people, and they have all one language, and this is only the beginning of what they will do. And nothing they propose to do will now be impossible for them. Come, let us go down and there confuse their language, so that they may not understand one another's speech. So the Lord dispersed them from there over the face of all the earth, and they left off building the city. Therefore, its name was called Babel, because the Lord confused the language of all the earth. And from there, the Lord dispersed them over the face of all the earth. The word of the Lord. Uh, my name is Brian Sorgenfry. I'm an associate pastor here. Really glad uh, that you're here as we dive back into our series of Genesis that we took a couple of weeks from. We are saying that Genesis is our origins, that it gives us the beginnings of how a Christian is supposed to think and understand this world, who we are in our relationship with God. And for our kind of two-week break, we ended with Noah and the flood and the cleansing judgment that God brings from wickedness where out of the ark comes Noah and his family as a new beginning. What I want to do, because every origin has to have a destination and ending, right? I'm going to read a passage from Revelation, which is where this world is headed. It, it's, it's what's coming. And here's Revelation 7. This is the Apostle John. He says, After this I looked, and behold, a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb. Think about that contrast. Genesis 9 ends, a flood happens, Noah and his family, that's it. Located in one spot of the world, probably somewhere in the Middle East. And yet by the end of the Bible, you have, at the end of world history, a multitude that no man can number from every tribe, tongue, and nation together, worshiping the Lamb who is Jesus. How in the world does that happen? Genesis 11 is the beginnings of how that happens. That this vision of a multitude that no man can number, its origin finds itself here. Which means, this is what's interesting, God's plan A for the world has always been to populate and develop the world until it becomes a beautiful, flourishing city filled with diversity from every tribe, tongue, and nation. That's always been his plan. And like my friend says, if you ever get, what, what is plan B with God? Just says go back to plan A. That's all there is. And so I want to I look at this plan that God has to fill the world with diversity because only that diversity displays the beauty of God in all its multifaceted wonder. We're going to look at it by looking at the city of man that we build and then building the city of God. All right, building the city of man and building the city of God. First, building the city of man. So far in Genesis, most of the focus has been on individual characters, Adam and Eve, Cain and Abel, uh, Noah and his family. But Genesis 11 becomes really the first time that the narrative focuses 
not on a particular individual, but as individuals come together, form a community, form a city, if you will, and start creating culture. And so this large group of people, they migrate east, they settle into Shinar, and you will see, I hope by the end, it's not that there's anything inherently wrong with the city, it's what the foundations of this city is built upon. It's, a, it's, it's rebellion. Everything about Babel is in rebellion to God. And here's how you know this. All right, I'm going to be a little bit teachy. If you walk through Genesis before here, again, we're told that, that all of humanity is made in God's image, made to reflect him, made to reflect his name and what he is like. And God has now twice explicitly told Adam and Eve, and then he told Noah and his family. Here's what he told them. He said, uh, be fruitful, multiply, and fill the earth. So God's command to humanity is this, spread out, fill the earth, proclaiming my name, God's name, by imaging me. But in verse 4, here's what you're told. They gather in a city and their cry is, let's make a name for ourselves rather than be scattered. Do you hear the contrast? God says, spread, proclaim the beauty of God's name. And Babel says, no, we will stay and proclaim our name make a name for ourselves. That's the rebellion of Babel. Because what is going on in the heart of the city of man, a city whose foundations is set against God and his purposes, is that we come together and make a name for ourselves. Which makes us ask, well, what's the big deal about that? Well, a name in the Bible, and even today, right, we know that it's more than just, than it's just letters. A name is who you are. Which, why... Even in the next couple of weeks, you'll see that God starts changing people's names. He'll change Abram's name into Abraham because that's who he is. And so having a name means that you have an identity. It means that you have worth. It means that you're not just this nameless cog in the wheel out there that nobody knows. Having a name means that I know I'm valuable. It means I know that I'm special. And so the Bible's assumption is that because sin has separated us from God, and sin means we try to live independent of God, that the, part of the struggle of humanity is that we come into this world not knowing who we are. We feel like a nobody. And so what we do is we try to make a name for ourselves. We set out to try to make ourselves feel special, but we manufacture it by our own doing, by proving ourselves, by trying to stand out, whatever. There are infinite ways that we as an individual or even as a society can try to make, ourse- make a name for ourselves, but it's always us doing it not independence on God. That is Babel. So I heard a pastor talk about one time when he had a, uh, he had a good relationship with a counselor uh, at one of the Ivy League schools. And as he was talking to him about life uh, on, you know, in this Ivy League school, this, this counselor said, well, you know, there's an inordinate amount of depression right now at Ivy League schools, which is true over the last kind of 20 years. And so this pastor was asking about why the Ivy League counselor kind of said, well, somebody has to get a B. And he said, what do you mean by that? And he said, well, what's interesting about these Ivy League schools is, right, most people who come to Ivy League schools, they might not have been the most popular in high school. They might not have been the most athletic. But the one thing they were was smart. But when you get to Harvard or you get to wherever, somebody's got to make a B. And when they make a B, they don't know who they are anymore. Which is really fascinating, right? Put, put the language, which means they... They built for themselves a name by being smart. But also when they got into a place where everybody else has the name of being smart, they lost their distinctiveness and they didn't know who they were. 
and therefore depression. And so if we start thinking about the, the city of man, Babel, in all of our hearts individually, you'll start realizing this, this explains why we do what we do. And this is why life can feel so exhausting and frenetic. Because, again, I worked on a college campus for uh, 13, uh, more than that, 17 years. And I have deep compassion for what freshman year feels like. Because think about that. You, junior high, high school, you kind of make a name for yourself somehow. It could be through athletics. It could be through being the funny one. It could be through being the creative one. But then when you get on a college campus, all of a sudden, all your capital around your name is gone. Nobody cares that, that what your ACT score was in high school. And you feel that. And so you start feeling like college is the next place i got to make a name for myself. And you get to work. But then it doesn't end there, right? Because college ends and then you go find a new job and now you're in a place where nobody cares what you were like in college and you got to make a new name in work. i got to make myself a somebody. And then when you get in your 40s and 50s, it doesn't stop there because then you start asking questions like, have I, have I made a name that's lasting? <laughs> and it just never stops because if, if my life is built on making a name for myself, it's never permanent. It's always slipping away. It always leaves us either constantly exhausted or frenetic because we're trying to get it, or we just end up in a place of despair and scoffing because we say, who cares anyway? But that, that is the sin of Babel, trying to make a name for ourselves. But then if you move out towards a kind of societal city level, which is what this passage really is about, it says every community has a way that you make, your, make yourself a name in it. Basically, every city has certain values that say, if you conform to this, if you do this well, you will rise. You'll make a name for yourself in this place. If you can't conform to these values, if you can't do these well, you will actually be on the margins. You'll be left out. And so in Babel, what happened was with this new technology, Brit, uh, brick and bitumen, they, they build this tower in the city. And that becomes the emblem of the name that they're making. It's their symbol. And we might look at that and think, oh, how silly, building a statue, you know, up into the heavens as your kind of mark of your name. But this is what Tim Keller points out. Things have not changed. You realize that any city, any town, the priorities and values of that town are marked by building structures. Saying, if you become like this, you will make it here. How do you make a name for yourself in Washington, D.C.? You make a name for yourself by having political clout, by making political connections, by getting things done. And guess what the biggest, most impressive buildings in D.C. are? The Capitol, Washington Monument, right? Things that show that value. Why, when the 9-11 terrorist attack happened, why did they go after the Twin Towers in New York? Yes, in some ways it's symbolic of the United States, but especially in New York, the way that you get a name is finance. Rise in the ranks. That's how you know that you're a somebody. So what about Oxford? We're a quaint little city, right? <laughs> what, it, what are our structures, our buildings that say, if you will build your life on this, you'll have a name? Here's my shot at it. I love Oxford, by the way. I don't ever want to leave. But we have this quaint little thing called the square. What does the square, what are the structures saying there that we value and that we love? Well, it is filled with restaurants and bars. It's filled with boutiques and businesses. Why? Because to get a name here revolves around parties, social connections, beauty, and money. 
getting things done. And it's all in the square. Which means you're comfortable probably in the square if, you, if you've kind of made a name for yourself in those, those areas. But you don't feel comfortable in the square if that's not you. You actually feel on the margins. Because you haven't made a name for yourself in that way. And so Babel is actually showing us that at the heart of man, we want to make a name for ourselves independent of God. And any society that gets built on making a name for yourself independent of God, it's on a trajectory that will always breed arrogance and it'll always breed pushing people that don't meet those values to the side, to the margins. Which means it's, it's the Tower of Babel that is the seed of every ism you can think of. Racism, sexism, ageism, classism. Because if money is the way that I make my name, if that's how I know who I am, then the poor are, the poor are always going to be marginalized. Class, classism, right? If, being, if kind of having energy and beauty to, and get things done, if that's what gives you a name, then guess who gets marginalized? The elderly, our kids, right? Ageism. If, if, if just being known for diversity, for diversity's sake, is kind of where you get a name, then guess who gets marginalized? The less progressive, right? To the point that actually there's a Hebrew scholar who points out that the Hebrew wording when they say, come, let us make bricks, and it has all kinds of connotations and foreshadowing to the next time that this happens in the Bible, which is in Egypt, where slavery is happening, and they make them make bricks without straw. In other words, what's happening in Babel is the beginning of slavery. Because that's what happens if we make a name for ourselves and a society gets built on that, then we, it always puts people beneath you. And we always trample upon the have-nots to get where we are. And so what you have is this, this picture of this city that's trying to make a name for themselves independent of God. And the result is always a shallow unity because it tramples on the have-nots. But then God begins to build the city of God, right? And I admit, it's, I think it's hard to find good news in Genesis 11, which is hard for me. I, I'm an optimist. I need good news. But there is some. Because in verse 5 through 7, God responds, and he re- responds to the rebellious efforts of Babel by coming down. It's actually a satire. Uh, it's kind of poking fun, right? Because here's people trying to make themselves big, independent of God, make a name. And they built this, what they think is incredible structure. But when God sees it, he still has to come down. Right, let me, let me kind of examine what's going on here. And as he comes down in verse, what was that, 6, um, he states why, he start, why he's about to confuse their language. Because he said, if, there do, if I don't do this, there will be such a pressure cooker of rebellion and, and idolatry that basically an empire of unrestrained evil and damage will be built. And so he confuses their language so as to restrain sin, so as to restrain the damage. It's kind of like what happens, um, you know, if you grew up in the Delta or somewhere around where there's a, where there's a dam or a reservoir, right? If, if extreme flooding is a, begins to happen, what they'll do is they'll actually release the pressure of the dam and actually cause some flooding in some areas. And they're willing to cause flooding in some areas because the greater damage would be done if the dam breaks, right? And so what God is doing here is he frustrates their plan with confusing the language because he's restraining the evil and the damage that would have happened. But here's what's awesome. God's purpose is never just to restrain evil, right? Plan A is plan A. He's going to populate and develop a world to where there's a multitude that, every man can, that, that no man can number from every tribe, tongue, and nation. And what you begin to realize is, yes, he's restraining sin, but he's also setting in motion his plan. 
Because chapter 12, which the last we'll begin with, is where we meet Abraham, who becomes the vehicle for the people of God that's going to one day populate until this whole world becomes a global city where heaven and earth are made up of every tribe, tongue, and nation. Which means God frustrates, this is what's called the city of man's pursuit to make a name for themselves. He frustrates that, judge that, but that actually opens up a window in his painful mercy to set the stage for something better. And what that means is as God begins to build his kingdom in your own heart individually and in any place, you'll a lot of times feel upside down. He will frustrate our pursuits sometimes in his mercy. He will bring pain into our life because he's building something bigger and better and more beautiful. So for those of you who can remember President Nixon and Watergate or familiar with that history, there's a guy named Chuck Colson, Charles Colson, uh, who he had made a name for himself uh, in the highest places of of politics. He became Richard Nixon's right-hand man. He was actually known as the evil genius of an evil administration, whatever you think about that. But all of that quickly came crashing down by by a scandal named Watergate, where he gets, uh, you know, arrested and he is judged and sentenced to prison uh, for what he did, spending seven months of a three-year term. It all came crashing down. And on the 20th anniversary of Watergate, all these major networks were running these specials, and they ended up interviewing Chuck Colson. And Mike Wallace of 60 Minutes asked him this question. He says, how do you look back on Watergate? And what Colson said was this. Mike, I thank God for Watergate, which is fascinating. What he was saying was that God frustrated my plans for making a name for myself in politics. There was failure. But on the other side of that, I realized it was God's mercy because I found Jesus. I found something better to live for. This is what God's mercy that comes through frustrating our plans sometimes looks like. Because many times we're pursuing making a name for ourselves independent of God. And sometimes the best thing that God can do for us is not give us what we want, but, make, but change what we want. We want God to give us a spouse or a better spouse or that job or successful kids or, or certain friends. And the frustration and failures in those areas can actually be marks of his mercy because he's saying you're looking for those things to name yourself. And they can't do it. And what you're actually looking for is God. And I want you to see that. But if we keep following the storyline of the Bible, yes, God forces them into confusing their language, which forces them to scatter and move over all, all the earth, forming different languages and cultures and ethnic groups, because God's gracious judgment on Babel, the world will start being populated through cultures and cities that are different. But here's what's awesome. God's going to come down again. 2,000 years ago, God is going to come down, not to just visit a city. He's going to take on a human body and be born from the Virgin Mary in a place called Bethlehem. And everywhere that God-man goes, Jesus, he starts saying things like, the kingdom of God is at hand. What in the world does that mean? It at least means this, that he is saying, around me and the work that I'm doing, the new building project has begun. The new building project of creating a community of people that no man can number from every tribe, tongue, and nature, it revolves around me and what I'm doing. And then Jesus confusingly gets raised on a cross. And then we see God come down again in judgment. And it comes down on Jesus, the one who's never sinned, 
the one who's always making God's name great, because he is God. And he's being judged in our place for all of our babble, all of our trying to make ourselves great, independent of God. And Jesus gets blotted out. And then he dies and he's resurrected and then he ascends into heaven. And this is where it really gets really fun. Because when you get to the book of Acts, in Acts 2, something interesting happens. God comes down again. He comes down by his Holy Spirit. As, as all Jesus' followers are gathered in a city uh, called Jerusalem, here's what happens. Acts 2, they were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. Now there were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews, devout men of every nation under heaven. And at this sound, the multitude came together. They were bewildered because each one was hearing them speak in his own language. And they were amazed and astonished, saying, Are not all those who are speaking Galileans? How is it that we hear each of us in his own native language? Did you hear it? God comes down again, but it's the reversal of Babel. You have, every, you have all these different ethnic uh, groups, cultural groups, all coming together. And the Holy Spirit declares the wonders of Jesus' name through the disciples. And everybody hears it in their own language. So God is now uniting people under the name of Jesus, not in a way that wipes away diversity, but in a way that unifies it beautifully under his name. He's bringing people back together in submission to, to King Jesus. So uh, Brian Haybeg uh, reminded me of this commercial. I actually went back and watched it this week, um, and it made me remember. Some of you might remember. Uh, after 9-11, about a month or so afterwards, uh, the Ad Council put together uh, this commercial to kind of, really to kind of, uh, well, it'll make you cry, honestly. And what happened is there, it, it starts with a face. And it's the face of an elderly man. He looks at the camera and he says, I'm an American. And then it's a young woman who looks at the camera and says, I'm an American. And it goes from almost every setting in America to almost every kind of people group. There's disabled people. There's abled people. Uh, there's black. There's white. There's Native American. There's people in rural settings and urban settings. Every time looking at the camera saying, I'm an American. And then it ends and the screen goes black and it says, e, it says, e, pluribus, e pluribus unum, out of many, one. It's this really powerful, moving truth that gets displayed that unity can actually be achieved if we love the same thing. Which for this commercial, right, the common thread was love of being an American and all that stands for. But even as you watch that commercial, you realize there's a limit to that unity. There were no Russian citizens in that, in that commercial. <laughs> there, were no, there were no people that, uh, you know, in other countries in that. But what God is saying in Babel is, I'm going to create a way that there will be such a supreme love that will start uniting people all over the globe. Because when he brings judgment on a, on, a, on a place that's built off making a name for yourself, he says, that's going to put in the work something that's going to bring about the healing and unity of mankind. Because in the city of God, the kingdom that God is building, you don't make a name for yourself your name is given to you freely. It's a gift of grace. It's something that Jesus earned and then hands to you. It's not dependent on your performance. It's not dependent on your, your, your beauty. It's not dependent on your successes or failures. In God's economy, the city of God is made up of people who can't make a name for themselves. They can't do it. And they have to depend on Jesus to give them a name. And by faith, this is, this is the promise of the gospel, that Jesus calls you beloved because he was cursed in your place on a cross. 
Our Jesus will call you holy because he was treated as if he was unholy on the cross. Our Jesus calls you his people, his bride, whose love will never change for you because he was cut off on the cross. It's all wrapped up in Jesus. So hopefully this doesn't sound too cheesy, but I, I really kind of want to bring it close by close by asking you to rewind that commercial and plug it into the story of the Bible. And here's what I'd ask you to see. That there's a face who looks at the camera and it's Abraham. Whatever he looked like. He, had, he must have had a beard. That's all I know. And he looks and he says, I'm united to Jesus, saved by grace. And the next time there's Rahab, a prostitute who's been used by, by men in, in Jericho. And she looks at the camera and says, I'm united to Jesus, saved by grace. And then there's the apostle Peter, just a common fisherman, looks at the camera and says, I'm united to Jesus, saved by grace. And then a Roman centurion. And then, and then somebody in the fifth century. And then you get all the way to our day. And there is a 16-year-old Chinese female meeting in some, some, some house church, uh, try, trying to avoid persecution. And in, a chi, in, the, in Chinese, looks at the camera and says, I'm united to Jesus, saved by grace. And there's a businessman in England dressed very upper class with a British accent that just sounds awesome, you know, who says, I'm saved by grace, united to Jesus. And a Honduran woman cooking over a fire and a poor person in Oxford and a rich person in Oxford, all those looking at the camera saying, I am united to Jesus, saved by grace. And the screen goes blank. It says, e pluribus unum, out of the many one, one people under Christ. That's the building project that God is doing in the world. That's what he's doing, not by making a name for ourselves and, and, and stamping on people, but by handing you a name that he heard, offered by sheer grace, and that actually begins to unify us. Because we're all in the same place. We all can't do it. We need the death of Jesus. And we, it means we see each other and say, oh, you too. You've been saved by grace. And so the Bible actually leads you to believe that you can have a deep unity with other people that you never would have gotten along with because of Jesus and what he's done. But that's where it gets convicting, right? Because the sin of Babel for honest, it has been running through church history and it's still running through my heart and yours. Because yes, I hear that and I look up and say, ah, my deepest connections with people so often resonate around same political preference, working out the same CrossFit gym, same educational philosophy, same economic class, because that stuff binds us more than the love of Jesus because we many times love those things more than we love Jesus. But here's the good news. Plan A is still plan A. Nothing's going to stop him. If you realize that about yourself, okay, ask God for mercy. Ask God to come down and by his spirit let you see that you have a name in Christ that was a gift of sheer grace, and it can never be taken. And that frees you. Say, I belong eternally to Jesus. I'm rich in him. I'm rich in the one who has shown me mercy. And because of that wonderful Savior, you can actually begin to lean into relationships with people different than you. Actually, one of the most holy things you can do is, is become friends with somebody that otherwise you would never be friends with but because of Jesus. Because God is saying that displays the multifaceted beauty of Jesus in a way that maybe nothing else does. Because what's coming is a world, a multitude that no man can number of introverts and extroverts, Africans and Asians, male and female, poor and rich, musicians and businessmen, rural, urban, Caucasian, Native American, all together proclaiming the beauty of God's name. 
That's what's coming. And you actually can lean into that today. My question is, is that a vision, that kind of city that's being built, is that a better vision than what you and I are living for? I think it is. And I'd invite you into it. Let's pray. Father, uh, we come in need of mercy this morning. Uh, We all in some ways try to make a name for ourselves and even are sometimes willing to trample on others for it. Would you forgive us? Would you give us the eyes to see Jesus who came down? Who came down to save and to build a kingdom of a multitude that no man can number from every tribe, tongue, and nation. A, A kingdom of diversity that displays your multifaceted beauty. And so would you, by grace, help us to lean into that this morning. We ask this in your son's name, I pray. Amen.